Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the USA. Today is the 28th of January, 2021, and I'm doing this podcast because I have nothing better to do. So we've been talking about neuropeptide Y and the arguate nucleus of the central nervous system. We've also been talking about corticotropin releasing factor slash hormone and the abundance of a circuit in the brain known as the fear response. Uh, and we talked about fear extinction. We spent last couple of lectures really talking more about biological psychiatry than biochemistry, but we're going to get in, back into the mainframe topic of this podcast today. So let's get started. I want to talk to you about the NPY and a little bit about the proopio melanocortin um, complex. So it's an NPY POMC axis, and we're going to talk about it in neuroendocrine aging. That's the actual topic of today's talk. <clears throat> Paper published November 2020 that we started referring to last time, I'm now going to continue on with. This is from the International Journal of Molecular Sciences. What do we learn from this paper? That NPY, neuropeptide Y, is associated with a variety of behavioral effects. And that can be demonstrated when you administer NPY to the brain of a rodent. Remember what I think about these kind of experiments. Animal models, particularly other mammals like rodents, including mice and rats, uh, have been used extensively in medicine research and in psychiatric research. And there's a big caveat there in the latter in particular, because the rodent brain and the rodent behavioral responses do not map on very well at all um, with human responses. Um, even though there have been literally tens of thousands of correlative research projects done to suggest there is a tight association between the rodent brain and the human brain. All of the affect and all of the cognition that occurs in the human brain um, is solely and wholly distinct from what must be occurring in uh, lower uh, mammals. Even our closest relative, the other primates like the simians, we know this because we can, for example, teach a very young child that if you leave the door open, that the cold air will come in. Whereas even if you have a well-trained dog or cat and you allow them to go out and you show them how they move through the door to go in and out, they won't close the door. They might be able to push the door open if you allow that to happen, but they won't close it. Yet, they'll go into an environment like, say, a garage or an outroom where it's cold, where you can see that they are cold and they can feel the cold. Now, that's only one example. It's, in fact, something that I witnessed recently with my wonderful dog, Rocky. Is as intelligent as he seems to be, he does not understand that if you close a door, that you can prevent yourself from having harm from the environment. And so... That means that no matter how many times he walks through that door and no matter what kind of cues I've tried to give him, 
trying to get the idea that closing the door will change the environment is totally lost on him. And the same kind of experiments have been done with, again, other primates. And you can train them to do specific behaviors, but the behaviors are usually based on reward. And there's never been any spontaneous understanding from any of these studies that I've seen. And I have looked at quite a few, um, which I must say is not the most enjoyable way to spend time. But I have read through a lot of these studies. And of course, I've seen a lot of um, video of these experiments. And none of it has any kind of convincing evidence that these animals can understand even basic things about their environment, that if they chose to, if they exercised free will beyond what is recognized behavioral responses, uh, they would benefit from it. So I know that I could have a lot of people disagree with me, and that's fine. But that's where I stand, and that's where I look at these animal model studies. That doesn't mean we can't understand a great deal about neural circuitry. Of course, we can, in, particularly in the rat and mouse model, which is the most common used. But the extrapolation to say that the, these behaviors you see in uh, rodent models uh, can map on to cognitive responses in humans, particularly if you're looking at the subtle changes in cognition and affect in an aging human. Um, th there's just no, there's no correlation there at all with whatever the mind is capable of doing in the rodent model and what we know the human mind is capable of doing, which is making decisions based on their free choice of will, um, whether or not it suits them or does them good to make those choices can be completely stochastic depending on the situation. You just don't see that in animals. So I want to continue to uh, emphasize that's where I come from from this. But okay, so if you take NPY and you administer into the brain of rodents, okay, that was a huge caveat, but I want to make sure I said it once again. But if you do that, you can stimulate food intake, particularly when you uh, administer NPY, neuropeptide Y, at the right concentrations with the right vehicle, right? organic chemical vehicle, if you inject it into the hypothalamic paraventricular nucleus, you can also promote social interactions. And when it's administered to the dorsolateral septum or the basolateral amygdala, you can also get an anxiolytic and antidepressant effect. And the same thing can be determined when administering it intracerebroventricularly, which is known as ICV. So MPY, rodent model for sure, seems to affect different aspects of fear-related behaviors. And that's shown by fear conditioning studies in these rodents. So for example, if you do an ICV administration of NPY, it can impair the acquisition and consolidation of cued and or contextual fear. And then therefore it impairs the expression of fear memories and indeed, it facilitates the extinction of fear, um, both cued and contextual forms. So these pro-social, anxiolytic, fear-reducing properties that I just told you in the rodent model of MPY suggest to some researchers a potential benefit in disorders in humans that are associated with social anxiety and fear. So accordingly, um, 
Some researchers have shown that an ICV-administered NPY reduces the expression of social fear in the animal model of SAD, right? Remember, that's the social anxiety disorder. Particularly a sub um, presentations of that known as social fear conditioning. We've talked about this already in authentic biochemistry. So this SFC is an animal model system. And the researchers who study it believe it mimics the major behavioral symptoms of human SAD, which of course are reduced social investigation of avoidance of conspecifics. And this further suggests social fear. So I would say rather significantly, both the acute treatment with benzodiazepines such as diazepam or chronic treatment with an SSRI like paroxetine seems to carry out reversed social fear in socially fear-conditioned mice. And this could be a predictive validity to what we just told you is this, this now sort of blooming up SFC model, right? SFC, a member, social fear conditioning. So if you look at amitriptyline, which is a tricyclic antidepressant, okay? Um, the way that it normally acts, its mode of action is by blocking the reuptake of both serotonin and norepinephrine, okay? So that is, again, amitriptyline. That's a TCA drug that has been prescribed for humans. Now, it's believed that that three-ring structure, along with its side chain, is what's necessary for tricyclic antidepressants to work. In fact, this amitriptyline is a tertiary amine, and it has a strong binding affinity for both the alpha adrenergic histamine receptor, which is H1, and the muscarinic M1 receptor. Now, because it binds both of those receptors, it's more sedating and it has an increased anticholinergic property as compared to the other tricyclics. So you can do mode of action, again, all with animal models. So both amitriptyline and fluoxetine, which is the SSRI, what they actually do in terms of their biochemical response is they inhibit an enzyme, which I've talked about at great length in this program, acid sphingomyelinase. So the acid sphingomyelinase is a system that generates ceramide and phosphorylcholine as the products of the reaction. I told you before that ASM is a lysosomal glycoprotein and it catalyzed the hydrolysis of sphingomyelin, ceramide, and phosphorylcholine only at acidic pHs. So we know that tricyclic antidepressants like desipramine, imipramine, and amitriptyline, and the SSRIs like fluoxetine, paroxetine, and sertraline, they all induce a proteolytic degradation of ASM. That is the enzyme. And therefore, they basically functionally inhibit its activity depending on concentration of the um, either the tricyclic or the SSRI. So what do we know about ceramide, the product? That's interesting, right? I'm telling you that drugs that affect um, neuropsychiatric states and then indeed are prescribed to millions of people for anxiety disorder and for major depression, as well as fear conditioning, that those drugs 
generate ceramides. So what's ceramides? Ceramides required for lipid membrane raft formation. And when it forms those rafts, when the right concentration of ceramide is generated after the ASM activity, it transports receptors to the surface of cells. And the kind of cells that have this acid sphingomyelinase performing this function include neurons, microglia, lymphocytes, and almost all biologically signaling cell lineages that have been looked at. So if you kill ASM activity, it shuts off only one of the biosynthetic routes for ceramide accumulation. So that one in particular seems to attenuate receptor-mediated endocytosis. Now, also interestingly, ceramide is pro-inflammatory, both controlling in some circumstances autophagy and indeed apoptosis. It's well known that chronic corticosteroid treatment will reduce hippocampal neurogenesis. It'll also inhibit neuronal maturation and neuronal survival. And indeed, chronic corticosteroid or cortisol induces a depressive-like symptom, which can be, again, behaviorally determined in rats and mice. So all of those corticosteroid-induced alterations can be normalized by using chronic tricyclic or fluoxetine type of antidepressants, both in wild-type mice and in mice that overexpress that acidic sphingomyelinase. Now, the same treatment in an ASM-deficient mouse, okay, a double knockout, fails to exert any kind of antidepressant effect. So you get no antidepressant effect in those animals. And it doesn't normalize to the corticosterone-induced locus. So that pretty much suggests that the antidepressant-resistant phenotype in ASM minus mice is from that gene and its product, presumably, right? So neither chronic paroxetine treatment or chronic amitriptyline treatment are going to be successful in reversing social fear in those ASM double knockout mice. That again suggests that ASM might be mediating the effect of the SSRI and the tricyclic antidepressants on social fear status. Okay, it doesn't mean that it has proven it, it suggests it. Now, we also know that acute NPY treatment reduces social fear in ASM double knockout mice. And that could be a way to generate an alternative pharmacotherapy for antidepressant resistant social fear in humans. This is the argument. So the results overall might suggest that medication strategies that are aimed at increasing brain NPY concentrations, uh, which has a major role in fear conditioning in the rodent model, might improve symptoms of social fear in SAD patients, that is uh, social anxiety uh, uh, patients in, in uh, the human population. Um, and those people in the SAD category often fail to respond to antidepressant therapies because NPY seems to work beyond that capacity. It's possible that it could be a new strategy. So strategies could include administration of a brain-penetrating NPY receptor agonist 
uh, or inhibitors of the NPY cleaving peptidases. So there's a lot of different ideas out there. Now to remind you about fear circuitry, okay? Cortical and thalamic projections are gonna be the ones that convey the somatosensory and the auditory information, which targets, the first target is gonna be the lateral amygdala. So fear-related stimuli reach the central amygdala, amygdala, and they also get there via what's known as the mediodorsal intercalated neurons. And that goes to the central lateral subdivision or to the central medial subdivision of the amygdala. NPY neuronal main processing, though, occurs in that central amygdala in the central medial subdivision region specifically. Now, why is that? Well, because that region, that nucleus, subnucleus, expresses two NPY receptors, the Y1 and the Y2. So by doing that, they affect local inhibit, inhibitory neurons. And by the NPY GABA afferents that are found there, and those ultimately originating from the BNST, okay? So that's a really important issue there, right? Um, third thing I wanna bring about NPY, NPY exonal terminals originating from neurons of the main intercalated nucleus uh, can also lay down projections that are involved in fear extinction. So the afferents from the central amygdala, okay, that region I just told you about, the central medial uh, subdivision, okay, can be further modulated by NPY along the stria terminalis. These are all nuclei in, in that portion of the brain that deal with fear, in, including the limbic system. That's where we are. Uh, so that's in the stria terminalis or on the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, which is, of course, the... BNST. That's the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis. That's what I, that's where it ends up. Now you do have um, negative um, influences on this fear circuit. So again, the fear circuit comes from the cortex and the thalamus. It goes through the lateral amygdala. Then it moves through multiple regions of what are known as the Broadman area of the cerebral cortex. Then it ends up again in this central medial subdivision of the amygdala um, and then moves beyond that to the striata and into the BNST. So where there is an inhibition of that can arrive from um, somatostatin NPY neurons that are in localized in the BNST. So this is downstream um, inhibition in the final nucleus where fear uh, it, it ultimately ex, it gets to extinction, but you also can get, and that's what the Y1 and the Y2 receptors, but you can also get this in dopaminergic one receptor uh, and NPY neurons, okay? So it gives you a little bit more idea about the circuitry and where we're working from. And a lot of none, this is all from the RAT model, remember that. Now, I wanted, I want to, have you tried to remember what we just talked about there, about the fear circuitry, NPY. And now I'm going to bring in a couple of other biochemical nuances. This comes from a paper published in Molecular and Cellular Endocrinology back in 2018. Don't worry, I'll put it in the show notes. This talks again about the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus. And recall 
that that contains opposing orexigenic NPY, a goody-related peptide neurons, okay, that's the feeding stimulus, and the anorexigenic pro-opiomelanocortin neurons. And the interaction between those two sets of neurons in the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus regulate food intake and energy expenditure. And the way that that occurs is they integrate multiple signals of energy status from adipokines and even from nutrients like free fatty acids. So in the anorexigenic system, you have leptin and insulin acting positively on the induction of the POMC system. And then you have GABA there functioning, right? Because that's a, that's a GABA neuronal processing point that can be inhibited by the agouti-related protein and the NPY neuronal circuitry. The same time, the POMC locus, the anorexigenic, remember, neurons, they act negatively by using beta endorphin, which of course is an end product of POMC, proteolytic processing. That works negatively on the agouti-related protein NPY neurons. Also remember that the way you activate the agouti NPY neurons is ghrelin generating glutamate. And so those are glutamate sensitive, neurotransmitter sensitive uh, neurons. Okay, so synaptic plasticity in that system between anorexigenic and anorexigenic is important in the maintenance of that energy balance. Now that's in a, that plasticity works in, of course, concert with direct input from peripheral hormones that I just mentioned to you leptin and insulin on the POMC neurons, and that's also a CART neuron, right? Um, and then ghrelin acting positively on the agouti-related protein NPY neurons, okay? So those two, again, are the major energy-balancing neuronal types in the hypothalamus. And I just explained to you how they interact with one another. GABA works on the POMC circuitry, is negative from the AGRPNPY neurons, and beta-endorphin works negatively on the, uh, from the POMC CART neurons to the AGRP and NPY neurons. So they co-regulate their activation. Right? Remember that that CART is the cocaine-amphetamine-related transcript, if I didn't mention that. I know I did last time. So something about the major cellular pathways involved in the induction of the hypothalamic dysfunction um, all those pathways interact with one another to amplify a response. And the response is, now here we go into why I was bringing up the arcuate nucleus. The response is amplified to a high fat diet in rodents and in obesity, in obese models of rodents. And the interactions between pathways are shown to involve working through the toll-like receptor four, okay? So you have long chain saturated fatty acids. And indeed you can also have lipopolysaccharide, which is of course a fragment from bacterial degradation, binding to the TLR4, which works through a kinase pathway, including the mid-88 and the IK kappa beta. Now the IK kappa beta is gonna generate oxidative stress, okay? And actually, the stress is going to work on the mitochondria, 
and it can cause autophagy. If it's pronounced oxidative stress, you'll get a defect in autophagy because autophagy, remember, inclines to mitophagy. That is the degradation, the auto-degradation of mitochondria. So if you get enough oxidative stress because there's too much reactive oxygen generated from the mid-88 IKK beta pathway, you're going to start degrading enough mitochondria that you can actually start losing the ability to be autophagous. And you start going into apoptosis, okay? So that's linked to ceramide because ceramide, remember this goes back to the sphingomyelinase pathway. You can also make ceramide de novo and also from two other pathways that I went to great detail on last, um, oh, I think it was in September. But ceramide will induce both autophagy and programmed cell death. Remember that programmed cell death has a caspase dependent and caspase independent form, and that can lead to necrosis, which is not your classic apoptosis at all, because it will generate an inflammatory response, right? So what happens with um, the long chain saturated fatty acids moving through TLR4, mid-88, IKK, beta, is that you turn on NF-kappa-B, which acts as a transcription factor, which induces the transcription of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Which ones? The, our old favorites, TNF-alpha, interleukin-1, interleukin-1-beta, and of course, interleukin-6. It's the same time that you're getting the autophagy defect. Now, TNF, okay, which is synthesized from this process, can bind to a receptor on the surface of adjacent cells or the same cell and work through the JN kinase, the Janus kinase, which not only is going to induce mitochondrial stress, but endoplasmic reticulum stress, okay? That's going to turn on, again, the IKK beta, NF-kappa beta, gene transcription system, inducing more pro-inflammatory cytokines. And remember, ceramides are going to be functioning in that same pro-loss of autophagy increase in apoptosis pathway, okay? Now, another thing that the moving the TNF-alpha through its receptor will do because of the Janus kinase, Janus kinase, remember, helps control the stability of mRNA. So you have a higher stability, which goes over very rapidly for transcripts for pro-inflammatory cytokines. Now you're stabilizing that message, so you get an increase in translation. So beyond NF-kappa B working to control nation gene transcription, that is RNA synthesis, um, in the nucleus because of NF-kappa B acting as a transcription factor, turning on TNF-alpha, uh, interleukin-1, 1, 1 1-beta, and 6, increased messenger RNA shelf life because of the induction of TNF-alpha will increase the translation. So you have increase in transcription and translation. Okay. So this is really important. Now, program cell death includes that caspase dependent in, in independent form. Now, ceramide-induced cell death can work first proximally through autophagy. And then through that process that we just talked about, it can target mitochondria or it can target the endoplasmic reticulum, both of which uh, once upon, uh, upon stress can ultimately lead to programmed cell death, okay? Now that's when you upregulate a particular protein called Becklin-1. 
So ceramide-induced blockade of nutrient transporters is going to trigger autophagy because that's why why cells go into autophagy because they're becoming nutrient-deprived. But you'll also get cell death, and that cell death is not by caspase, by caspase independence. It's not the canonical apoptotic pathway. So an an inhibition of autophagy in this system because of high levels of circulating saturated fatty acids, or if you happen to be bacteremic, okay, but high, high levels of situate, circulating um, long chain like palmitic saturated fatty acid also comes from the obesogenic state, okay? So in, in, you get an inhibition of autophagy that accelerates cell death that could be, of course, leading to neurodegeneration. And in that context, autophagy is initially deployed to compensate for basically a bioenergetic catastrophe, but then that leads to a loss of glucose uptake, and that's because you get fatty acid inception of this whole process, which I just explained to you. This comes from a couple of papers, a paper published in a journal called Autophagy 2009, and another one from the Cities of Nutrition Society in 2012. And yes, I will put these in the show notes. So let me take a real quick look at time here. Yeah, we got to end here. So I'm going to end here now. The very next lecture, which I'm going to do this afternoon later, is going to now bring ceramide into the spotlight. So hopefully now we're moving from the biological psychiatry back into straight form biochemistry, and hopefully the transition has been smooth. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Studio, saying bye for now.